Father in heaven, we just want your spirit to fill every one of our hearts. Lord, we want to serve you. We want you to be the center of our lives, and we want our relationships to reflect our love for you. Lord, every one of us is here because we do have a heart hunger for love, and you've put it into our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see how we can find satisfaction in that by your strength and by your grace. And I pray that you will work out your will in every life and in every heart that's represented here. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, for those of you who don't know, my husband is from Africa, and um, I grew up in America. So we, we had never met each other until a year, actually a year and two days before we got married. This is not something I recommend. Please don't try this at home. But it's how the Lord led us. He had been involved in ministry. He was pastoring over in Africa, and I was living in New York. And at the time, I, you know, I had been through a few, a couple of relationships. I really had stopped dating when I was 16, and I didn't start dating again until I was about 23. And then I dated a couple of guys, and things just didn't work out each time. The first time, I think just because I got into the relationship because, well, he's a nice guy, and I'm a nice girl, and we both are consecrated to God, you know, why not? We like each other. And that I wouldn't recommend as a good way to find somebody to marry. And it didn't work out for us. There were a lot of reasons that things didn't work out well. And then I dated another guy, and it really seemed like God had worked miracles to bring us together. And it was a long-distance relationship, but everything was working so great until we actually spent time in the same place at the same time. And then we found out that we just really weren't going to work out. So, you know, I think that the Lord gave me those experiences. While it isn't his will for us to go through a lot of heartache and, and trouble, I think he allows us to go through things sometimes that will be a blessing to other people and a blessing to us. If I hadn't had that long-distance relationship that didn't work out well, I might not have known the dangers of a long-distance relationship. And, you know, I might go around recommending to everybody, yeah, find somebody, online relationships are great, blah, 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 because most of our getting to know each other was long distance. He was in Africa and I was in America. But the principles I'm going to share with you today apply whether you're relating to each other long distance or, you know, you've known each other ever since you were kids and grow up next to each other. Whatever it is, you know, and I want to encourage every one of you. I know God has a plan for your love life. He has a plan for how he wants to fulfill the desires in your heart. Um, you know, we're told in the Bible that it is not good for man to be alone. Sometimes I've had people come to me and they're like, I just feel so guilty. I know I shouldn't date somebody, but I like this girl. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with liking somebody. There's nothing wrong with having that, that longing and that attraction. The problem is we have to keep it under control until the Lord tells us it's the safe time to unfetter it, the safe time to pursue a relationship. Now, when I say the Lord tells us, I don't mean that you're going to hear a voice in, from heaven or, or a miracle or something like that. But I think you'll see as we're talking through this seminar that God, God has a many, many ways to speak to us. And he will speak to us most of all in his word and help us to learn what his plan is for our, our love stories. Every love story is unique, just like every person is unique. And it's so beautiful to see what God does when we surrender to him. Now, we're living in an era when there's more love in the air than anything, you know, any previous time in history. You know, for one thing, a lot of people get married multiple times. So if 50% of marriages end in divorce, that doesn't mean that 50% of you are going to get divorced. Some people have multiple marriages, but there are a lot of weddings going on. Weddings are huge business in America. And people just, you know, they dream of their wedding day. And a lot of that is because of the culture we live in with movies and music and everything else glorifying that if you just find the one person out there who will love you and make you satisfied for all of your life, then you'll be happy. And I'm here to tell you that's not the truth. Um, but we're living in a time when you can click on Google and put in love and find a million resources. Literally, you can find so much about love, about how to fall in love. You can find somebody to date, guaranteed, as long as you've got internet access, you can find somebody to love. And there are more weddings and more, more people falling in love than ever before. And yet it's the loneliest time in history. More people are devastated by loneliness. More people are suicidal, especially in our culture today, than we've seen in, in history. It's it's just an epidemic of depression and of loneliness. And that is largely because marriage is seen as the solution to 
to our loneliness problem. It's like, if I just find somebody who will love me, and it's true, we need to find somebody who will love us in order to fulfill us, but that love can't come from any human. That human love is not strong enough or pure enough or deep enough to satisfy the craving of the hungry heart. But God has created in us that longing for love, and he wants us to find the satisfaction in him first. And when we find that satisfaction in Christ, when he, when he purchases our thirst, you know, you, you, you have that, that thirst. Um, and living at Southern, you know, come on guys, let's be real. If you're not dating somebody, it's a lonely experience to be at Southern and walk past all the other people who are dating somebody. It's hard, isn't it? It makes you feel lonely. Even if you were fine until you came here, all of a sudden you see everybody else is in love and it hits you, right? Why not me? How come nobody loves me? Is there something wrong with me? You know, it, this is a reality in, in our culture. We have a culture that makes us feel like until you find somebody to love, you're never gonna be happy. And once you find somebody to love, then you'll be happy. But the love that God wants us to, to drink deeply from is from above. As the Bible says, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. As you see with your friends, People who are dating most of the time break up and then they have their, their whole lives shattered. Probably almost everybody who comes to Southern goes through some relationship that falls apart and it wrecks a semester. It may even wreck their entire time here. And I know a lot of people leave here with their hearts broken. They feel like they have no future because they found love, but then it fell apart and it didn't bring them the happiness they dreamed of. But God has created in us this longing for love. <coughs> He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 8. So that longing to be loved is a God-given craving. And God wants us to find the satisfaction of it and the fulfillment in Him first and in Him alone. And once we're not thirsty, we can see what we really need. Have you ever gone shopping when you're hungry? Has anybody ever gone shopping when they're hungry? I made that mistake a couple weeks ago. I came home with a whole bunch of stuff I didn't need. And, and the whole reason was it looked so good because I was already hungry. Until we let Christ satisfy our hunger, we're not ready to go out shopping for somebody else. But love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired, according to Robert Frost. <clears throat> and the one who irresistibly desires every one of our hearts, I'm happy to say, already loves you. He's already right there with you. He's already the one who wants to satisfy every longing in your heart. So you're not hungry, you're not thirsty anymore. Now in today's culture, we see a lot more of love's evil twin, as I call it. Um, love's evil twin is what you will see if you watch almost any movie. And I'm talking about infatuation. It's, it's characterized in this cartoon. They have fallen in love at first sight. And each of them has pictured in their minds exactly what love means. She has his everlasting gushing affections as he brings her flowers and falls down on one knee before her. And he is thrilled to know that now he's finally found somebody who will bring him food so he doesn't have to get up and go get it while he's watching TV. You know what the problem with this, this epitome of infatuation is? It's all about me. You know, she wants somebody who's going to satisfy her needs. He wants somebody who's going to satisfy his needs. But what are, where is the satisfy the other person part? You see, two empty people are not going to fill each other up. So you have to choose love or lust. Is it about getting somebody who will satisfy me? Or is it about finding somebody who I can share God's love with? When we have that fountain of living water flowing in us, bubbling up, pouring out to give to others, we just can't help pouring love on those around us. And that's not just a spouse, but it certainly includes a spouse. It certainly includes your family. And you can practice pouring love on your parents, on your brothers and sisters, on your friends. But somewhere along the way, when it comes to relationships, we have to choose. We come to the why on the road. Which way are we going to follow? Which way are we going to choose to pursue a spouse? 
Now, the way that most people take in the world starts out with attraction, right? You're, you're at Southern now, so you go to class and you see, you know, when you walk into class the first time, you look around, what is the killing? What, what's here? What's, what's the best one? Maybe you pick out five. Yeah, those, those are kind of cute. Or, you know, as you're going through the cafeteria, you're spending your time everywhere you go, you start noticing, yeah, yeah, that, that one's kind of interesting, or that one too. Or, you know, hey, I remember there was a guy that I was crazy about. And then, you know, I mean, crazy about in a relative term, because there were probably like five other guys were around that I would have been crazy about too, if I thought any of them might like me. But then this guy started to like me, and he was popular, and he was cute, and he was totally at the top of the in crowd. And then one night he invited me to go out and go hang out with him. And one thing led to another and we ended up kissing. And, and I was like, wow, I finally arrived. I'm Jeff's girlfriend. And I said, man, it's too bad we didn't do this sooner. And he's like, I said, yeah, we're, we're really stupid, aren't we? And he's like, yeah, because Missy's getting here tomorrow. <laughs> And I was such an idiot. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the girl he really likes, huh? Oh well, it really didn't bother me because I was kind of like, well, you know, so what? I didn't really like him that much, but of course I thought it would be just fantastic to be his girlfriend. But, you know, if he wasn't really interested in me, no problem, because there was somebody else out there too. I, I really have a hard time remembering what kind of mindset I had back then. It was so different, but that was the same summer that my lifeguarding teacher sat down with me and said, Nicole, if you keep acting the way you are right now, you're not going to be a virgin much longer. And I was blown away. A, how did she know I was a virgin? And B, how did she know that th something was going to happen? Because I was committed. I wasn't going to have sex before marriage. You know, I was going to do it right. But she was right. And the way I was relating to guys in flirtation and all that, I remember I talked to one of my guy friends that summer and I was disgusted because there was this other friend who was always sitting on guys' laps and draping her arms around them and all that. And I was like, that is so disgusting. She's such a flirt. I hate flirts. And he laughed in my face. He said, what are you talking about? You're the worst flirt out there, Nicole. And I was like, no way. You, how can you say such an awful thing to me? I was so mad at him. But he was right. I didn't drape my arms around guys, but I didn't see anything wrong with putting on a swimsuit and prancing across camp in it because guys like to see that, right? And if, you know, my guy friends came up and said, hey, well, of course I'd give him a hug because it feels nice, right? What's wrong with that? But it was a mindset that leads to impulsiveness, once you're attracted to somebody and then you find, you know, wow, he likes me. I like him. You know, you start flirting with each other. You do that little delicate play of, I think, hmm, let me try this. Sure enough, she giggled, you know, and, and then you follow your impulses and say, well, I feel like doing this and you want to go out tonight? Sure. Why not? It's not a prayerful, careful process. It's an impulsive, I feel like doing this. What's wrong with it? How come I can't have any fun, you know? We're willing to go to church on Friday night. We're willing to, you know, consecrate our Friday night to God. But don't ask me to give up my Saturday night to God, too. Right? Am I speaking truth? Come on, tell me if it's, this is too harsh, right? So our whole goal is to satisfy ourselves in the typical Western culture way of finding a spouse. So we get infatuated, we find somebody we're attracted to, they like us, we like them, so we say, well, let's start dating. So we test drive this commitment. Yeah, yeah, I like him, he likes me, we're dating. He's my boyfriend. Boy, it feels great. But most of the time, you know, for every person who actually marries the person that they're dating, there are how many breakups, you know? Most of the time it ends in a breakup. Breakups are not pretty. They are just not fun. You know, I know so many people who whose lives are shattered by breakups. And then, of course, when we're in so much pain, we want to find somebody else who help us feel better. I remember a friend who immediately, when he would see a breakup coming on the horizon, would start texting another girl. And, or lots of girls, you know? Because he, he had like five that were drooling on his trail. So whenever this relationship didn't seem to be working out, he'd start texting all of his other friends just to make sure he had somebody as a backup, a cushion for when, he, when things fell apart. The bottom line is it's really all about self. And as a result, 
A life partner is chosen based on what they look like or who is closest. Who's around? Because I got to have somebody. You're the best person around, then that's who I'll pick. And their commitment is based on, I feel like being with you. You make me feel so much better. I don't know how I would survive if we broke up. It's not based on a choice. What happens when you get married? I'm here to tell you, I married the best man in the entire world for me. I adore him. I'm so in love with him. But sometimes commitment is based on choice and not on feeling. I am not married to him because I feel like being married to him. Sometimes I feel like being married to him. Sometimes he doesn't make me feel so great and I feel like going for a walk. But I still am committed to him and you don't want to have a relationship that's based on whether you feel good because it'll always be inherently unstable. And there are three possible outcomes. You may have a happily ever after even if you pursue the wrong trail. If you are lost in the woods and you just randomly wander straight, you may come to your campsite. It happens. And I've known plenty of people that the Lord has guided even though they pursued a faulty method of finding a spouse and they end up finding somebody and the Lord works miracles and they end up having a happy marriage. I think God can do that with almost any two people who are truly surrendered to him. But it's a rocky road and I don't recommend it. Um, the much more likely options are they have a breakup that's made very painful because of their bonding. They've built this relationship with each other and they don't know how to go on without each other or they have a life commitment that's built on a faulty foundation and their marriage is forever not what it could have been if they had let God be in charge at the very beginning. <clears throat> That's not what you want to go through. I believe that God has a much better plan for us, something that he truly wants to do in every one of your lives. God has a plan. It's not like God is sitting up there saying, well, you know, if you really want to make your life work out well, then pray about it and I'll get back to you. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan where he's saying, I will give her the desires of her heart. I will give him the desires of his heart. Either what you're longing for in the person that you maybe like right now, if there's someone that you already think, well, maybe this is the right one. Either God wants to lead you together with that person, or he wants to lead you together with somebody better, or he has another plan that is better than anything you could imagine. When we surrender our lives to God, he always gives us either the desires of our hearts or something better. And when we get to heaven, we'll be able to look back and see, wow, his way really was the best. For some people, that might be singleness. I'm not going to promise you that if you surrender your love life to God, he's going to get you to get married. I came to the point in my own love life where I felt like, you know, I probably am never going to find anybody. But that's actually okay because I have God and it's Jesus in me. And, you know, I can throw my my sleeping bag in the back of the car and keep going and all I have is Jesus and it's wonderful and God will give every one of us that experience where Jesus is enough we're not hungry we're not thirsty anymore and then he will give on top of that he just loves to give us blessings above and beyond anything we can ask or imagine now in the process that I've discovered for how God leads us together with a life partner I'm going to share with you the ideal of what God wants to do in your life and how it can work. Um, the first step is becoming whole in Christ. Getting rid of that hunger and that thirst. Not by saying, I'm not hungry. I don't need to get married. You ever done that? You know, my friends and I had the whole convent thing. We were, we were going to start a convent together. I was, I was going to be old maid with my friend. I was, I was um, Esme. She was Hattie. And we had another friend, Bertie. Those were our fake old lady names. We were going to get old together. We were going to die eating spaghetti without any sauce. I don't remember why, but that was how it was. So, you know, there's some fun in being able to just say, I can handle without that. But God, God's highest plan for you is not that you just pretend like it isn't there. No, I can't feel this. I'm not lonely. I'm not going to think about it. It's that God wants to fill you so full that you're not thirsty. <clears throat> so you focus on your relationship with God. Everybody knows the three steps to building a relationship with God, right? You pray, you study your Bible, and you witness to others. Those three steps, when you do them, even if you don't feel like it, it will create a relationship with God as you consistently pursue spending time with Him, draw close to Him, give Him your heart, surrender to Him. All He wants is a willing heart. It's not that hard to build a relationship with God. And once you build that relationship with God, even though it seems like 
that relationship with somebody else is an unreachable dream, God will bring you into something you could never imagine, something much more beautiful. Second, prepare for your life calling. You know, when you're married, it's really not the best time to be going through school, to be raising children and, and all of that at the same time that you're trying to you know, live with your marriage. And student life, you know, I remember when I was a student just thinking, man, I'd go to a wedding, somebody else would get married. I think, boy, it would be nice. But it's not me. I'll go back to my dark, lonely bedroom. Glad they're on honeymoon. Somebody will enjoy their lives anyway. But those times passed, you know, and I'd get, get back to reality. But now that I look back at my student life and the time I had when I was single, I see what a tremendous experience it was to be single. I had so many adventures. I traveled all over the world, mission trips, call porter programs, Bible work. It was a blast. I could do so many fun things, and I made so many solid quality friendships, friends that are with me now friends that I'm still close to after so many years. Because in that single time, I could focus on building friendships with other people. You know, I know people who have gone through academy all the way through four years of high school dating one person, and then they break up. Then they find somebody else, and they date that person all the way through college, and then they break up. And you know what? They don't know anybody else from the college or the high school that well because they stayed so faithful to this one person, they didn't get to know anybody else. Everybody else was kind of hands-off, that's so-and-so's boyfriend, that's so-and-so's girlfriend, you know? And they come out of it without solid friendships. You need your solid friendship network. Single life is a glorious time for you to just experience all the things you're not going to be able to do when you're married. Marriage comes someday, you know? When I was like 19 and I thought people, you know, I'd hear of people getting married when they're 27 or 28, I'm like, wow. Man, I hope I don't have to wait that long. <laughs> but when I got married at 27, I realized, wow, you know, I'm so glad I didn't get married any sooner. Number one, because I had so many rich, full experiences. Because I lived my life instead of living my life just waiting in the corner for my prince to come. And secondly, because that single time prepared me for who I needed to be for my husband. If we had met each other two or three years before, we both probably would have run the other way. We just weren't right for each other at that point. But God in his mercy changed us into who we needed to be. He gave us ministry experiences, life experiences, so that when we met each other, we clicked. And I don't know how else to describe it. Everybody's like, well, how will you know when you meet the one? I didn't need anybody to tell me when I met the one. But it was, it was a process of figuring out. I didn't just like see him walking down the street and go, whoa, that's the one. But the more I got to know of his personality, of his character, of how much like Jesus he was, the more I saw, this is the guy. We just fit like a hand in a glove. And I don't know how else to describe it. But I knew that God was leading us together. I'll share more about that later. But preparing for your life calling is such a crucial thing during your single time. Don't waste it hoping you're going to get married, praying, please, God, send me somebody. Don't let me be an old maid. Live your life and, and prepare yourself. Get into ministry opportunities. Do things you won't be able to do later on. Experiment. Find what God wants you to do with your life. And then you'll be able to see that your life partner's calling meshes with your life calling. Overcome your weaknesses and develop your strengths. This is a big one. For me, I had, I had come from a background where I wasn't ready to have healthy relationships. And for Alan, it was the same. We had two very unhealthy backgrounds behind us from our families and divorce and, and all kinds of things going on in our lives. Abuse for me. We needed time to develop into who God wanted us to be. So as we had time that was, we were single and when we were dating other people, we, we uncovered all kinds of weaknesses in ourselves that needed to be dealt with. So we read some good books. We developed friendships with quality people. We met mentors. We had people spend time with us who helped us to see that's what a healthy marriage ought to be like. That's how people can communicate and deal with conflicts without wrecking relationships. Those, those times were priceless. They were so useful to us in building a marriage so that once we met each other, you know, we kept saying, well, the first year's going to be really rocky. You know, we come from different continents. We've hardly even spent time around each other. We didn't even know each other's favorite foods. But the first year of marriage was a taste of heaven. It was wonderful. We kept waiting for the, the big conflicts to come. But because we had spent a thorough time in developing into who we were going to be, we didn't have that rocky, what? 
that's how you are, but that threatens who I am. We'd become who we wanted to be. You know, you think about who you were two years ago. Two years from now, you're going to be really different from who you are now. Now is the time to develop into who you need to be so that when you meet your spouse, you're not a completely different person two years later, and they aren't either. And I mentioned this already, but build quality same-sex friendships and non-exclusive opposite-sex friendships. I have a lot of friends who are guys who I knew before I met Alan, and I'm so glad that I still have those friendships. If I had dated those guys, and some of them I kind of liked, and some of them they kind of liked me, but we didn't see the Lord leading us together, so we kept it that way. We stayed just friends. And that's a book I'm going to write one of these days. I'm working on it, but haven't gotten there yet. But we're just friends. The Single Christian's Guide to Saving and Savoring Opposite-Sex Friendships. I'll summarize it like this. <laughs> don't let yourself try to halfway date. When you're not going to date the person, don't date the person. And don't pretend like you're uh, best buddies or you're just like brother and sister when you're not, because you're not. So I built really close <laughs> friendships, and I still have those friendships because I don't look at those guys faces in the yearbook and go, oh, my ex, because we weren't. We're just friends, and we're still just friends. That's a great feeling. Keys to success in step one. I'm imagining that a lot of you are in step one right now, where you're not dating anybody exclusively, but you're trying to find out what God's will is for you. Make Christ the center of your life. Plan your life around Christ, not a person. I've known people, they, they meet somebody and they think, wow, he's just what I dreamed of. She's all that I ever wanted. And suddenly, they want to do whatever the other person is doing. She's going to be a nurse, well, I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> Rather than planning their life around what God is calling them to do, they plan their life around, but if I'm going to marry so-and-so, I need to aim in that direction, right? Develop skills to support a family. You want to be able to support yourself, just in case, you know. You never know what's going to happen, but it's not a good idea to start a family when you're camped in your parents' backyard. Let's just put it that way. Avoid emotional involvement with the opposite sex. By that, I do not mean pretend like they do not exist. I mean don't get emotionally entangled with people. You know, the long, drawn-out, heart-to-heart talks with somebody for the opposite sex, which you could have with somebody of your same sex, but it's not nearly as hormonally exciting to talk to somebody who's your same sex. Don't bother. It'll, it'll wreck your life. There, I summarized it for you. Don't blame me when you mess it up. <laughs> Develop self-discipline. You know, I've wondered sometimes, why did God create people so that they mature sexually at like 13, 14, when they're not ready to get married then? But the reason, I believe, is that God wants us to learn to have self-control, self-discipline. Sex is not all about yourself. In this world, it is. In marriage, it's not. Sex is about love. It's about expression of love and about a relationship. It's not about getting some self-satisfied pleasure out of it. And so if you develop self-discipline, this is something that will be priceless to you for the rest of your life. You can never have too much self-discipline. Evaluate your own character. By character, I'm gonna, I say develop your own personality and evaluate your own character. These are two different things. By character, I mean how much are you like Jesus? If you recognize in your life, you know, I've got a problem with my temper. You know, I really do have a problem with getting jealous of other people. I tend to gossip. Work on your character. Find ways that you're not like Jesus and surrender those to Jesus. Talk to him about them. This is how you build a relationship with him, by depending on him and saying, God, I need you to get me through this. So-and-so is being mean to me, and I realize I need to be like you, and I'm not sure how to do that. Please change my heart. Change me into your image. That's, that's how you... You evaluate your character and be changed into the image of Christ. You need that before you get married. And then develop your own personality. Find who you want to be and who you are. And I don't mean that you, you, know, you just take a personality test and say, all right, I am a melancholy and I can never be anything else. Personalities change. Here I am standing in front of you. You don't know how against the, my personality this is. But God can call you to do things that you don't feel comfortable doing. And the key is... You need to give yourself to Jesus and say, how do you want to change me so that I can reflect your character to the world most effectively? And he'll show you. I guarantee God is in the business of showing you what parts of you need to be ground off and changed. And lastly, surrender. You can never surrender too much. Happily ever after. Will marriage really make you happy? 
Researchers tracked more than 24,000 people from 1984 to 1995, asking participants every year to rate their overall life satisfaction from zero, totally unhappy, to 10, totally happy. The average boost from marriage was small, one-tenth of one point on the scale. People who get married and stay married are more satisfied than average long before the marriage has occurred, was their conclusion. From the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, March of 2003. The bottom line in this study was that people who started out happy before they got married experienced a little blip of extra happy around the time they got married, and then they stayed right about where they were before they got married. People who were fundamentally unhappy experienced a little blip of happiness when they got married and went back to being just about where they were before. It just doesn't really change who you are. You know, I grew up with this Cinderella-like fantasy, you know, now life is hard, things don't go the way I want, but someday I'll get married. And then, you know, something about walking down an aisle in a fluffy white dress is going to transform everything in life, so I'm going to be happy. And I'm, I'm sorry, but you still keep waking up with morning breath after you get married. Until God calls you into marriage, he calls you to focus on becoming whole in him. Your security, identity, and heart must be bound up in your friendship with him. And without that, I promise you, marriage will not bring you happiness. It cannot, because God has created you with a hunger for him, and only he can fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. And until you let God fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, he's going to have to keep on letting you run into unpleasant circumstances in order to send you crying back to him. And if you don't come crying back to him, then you'll have to face something else because nothing is going to satisfy you until you get Christ at the center of your life. And if there's another person at the center of your life, it's going to be miserable. We'll talk about that in a later presentation about making and keeping your relationship healthy. Um, you can see this picture of two cups. They're both empty. And this is what I've seen in summary on this step Empty people crave somebody to fill them. But the more you crave a relationship, the less ready you are for it. It's only when you have Christ filling you to overflowing with that spring of water of life coming up from inside of you that you're really ready to fill yourself and pour out love that spills over into the life of your spouse, too. Now, in the second, process, second step in the process of mate selection after becoming whole in Christ is observing. And probably a lot of you are kind of in this step too. You're, you're watching other people that you know, maybe getting to know people and saying, hmm, he's nice. Hopefully you're not just evaluating them on a scale of 1 to 10 on attractiveness. But you're seeing what people are actually like as people. When you get to know people in a variety of circumstances, you get to know a lot more about who they really are. When Alan and I were dating, um, when I went to Africa, there you are, you handsome man. <laughs> we went on a camping trip, a three-day camping, canoeing, hiking, outing with a whole bunch of people. Don't get excited. We, <laughs> we had a whole herd of people with us, and we all went camping. Well, my wonderful knight in shining armor, I had been dating him for four months by now, all long distance. And when we were, we were going out camping, I packed all the food so carefully, and I planned all of our meals so carefully. I bought a whole bunch of little potatoes so that I could wrap them in tin foil and tuck them into the fire when we were out camping, and we can have baked potatoes. I'd never baked potatoes in a fire, but I figured if you buy little ones, then they'll bake faster, right? So they'll get baked all the way to the middle. I didn't want a crunchy potato in the middle to disappoint my fantastic uh, friend who might become my husband, right? So. We pack all of our potatoes in our backpacks, and we get to the campsite the first night, and oh, he's roaring about how starved he is. They build a big fire, and so I wrapped my potatoes in all the foil I'd so carefully remembered to bring and chucked them all into the fire, because I know you're supposed to bake potatoes on coals, but he's so hungry, so I'll just put them all in there. So I put all the potatoes into the roaring fire, <laughs> and... About 20 minutes later, I thought, well, maybe I should check those potatoes and see how they're doing. So I scraped one little potato out of the fire, and I saw, oh, the peeling looks a little black there. And I pulled off the tinfoil. Ah, they're all black. But, <laughs> so I raked them all out of the fire really fast. Well, they were all 
very well cooked. <laughs> so much so you could have made potato soup out of them. And he will make disparaging remarks about my cooking to this day uh, of those particular potatoes. Yes, yes, so he says. <laughs> but I, I'm here to tell you he made disparaging remarks about my potatoes that night in front of all these people. And I experienced a new roar. <laughs> how dare he say that I can't cook? He was the one who was howling about how hungry he was. <laughs> so it was just a little blip. We actually, we, we didn't have a major problem there. But um, <laughs> I certainly learned something about him. And I think he probably learned something about me, too. <laughs> you build quality friendships with people and just wait for finding out naturally about them. Now, when you're, when you're dating somebody or even when you're very conscious of each other. You know how it is when somebody that you like walks into the room and immediately you're conscious of everything? It's kind of like when you see there's a, a police car in your rear view mirror, all of a sudden you're very conscious of everything. <laughs> right, well, when you're very conscious of each other, you sometimes aren't really yourself. You try to be who the other person wants you to be. This is why it's great not to date, to get to know other people without being in a dating relationship, because then you, when you're spending time together with other people in a group setting, you get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses. You find out what they think is funny, for example, what kind of people they like to hang out with. Do they like people? Do they prefer books? These are important things you want to know before you start a dating relationship with somebody. So in this step of observing, I want to just make plain, in the observing step, you don't want to be cultivating anything. This is not when you're giving the long looks, you know or the sidling up to that person. And when you're out on a group walk, you know, you walk slower and slower with that particular person as you talk about deep, intimate topics. Um, this, is, this is a step before that, and it's a very important step. Please don't skip this and go straight from the, I think my relationship with God is fine now. Now let me leap headfirst into this person that I like. It's very important that you spend this time observing. Evaluate their character. How much is this person like Jesus? And that's what you need to know before you start dating them. Because if you're dating them, A, it's going to be hard to break it off if you suddenly see that they're not as much like Jesus as you thought they were. And B, if they're dating you, they're probably going to be very careful what they show you of what their character really is. Right? How many of you have observed this in dating? All right. I am not lying. And then you evaluate their personality. You know. There's nothing wrong with having very different personalities. When we get to heaven, we're all going to have different personalities, the personalities God created us with. But we're all going to have one character, the character of Jesus. You can make almost anything work, I think, between different personalities if you both have the character of Jesus. But sometimes you'll accomplish a lot more if your personalities naturally mesh with each other better. You know, the person who's super clean is going to have a very difficult life with the person who is super not clean. And that doesn't mean that either of them can't get married, but you're going to have a lot more clashes if your personalities don't mesh well. I know people who, like, the one partner would be happy to have the entire church over at their house every Saturday night. And the other person, their idea of a happy Saturday night is sit down in front of a fire with a good book and a spouse and maybe a cat. <laughs> and there's nothing evil about either one of those, but the two have constant conflict because one of them has a longing that can't be fulfilled unless they tread on the other person's longing. That's hard, hard. So you just, you want to build a relationship that's, that's with mutual personalities that mesh well. Now trifling with hearts is something that we're warned about. Um, Adventist Home, page 57, says, To trifle with hearts is a crime of no small magnitude in the sight of a holy God. And yet some will show preference for young ladies and call out their affections, and then go their way and forget all about the words they have spoken and their effect. A new face attracts them, and they repeat the same words, devote to another the same attentions. You want to be careful not to do that. It wrecks lives. Keys to success in step two are don't make a mental or emotional commitment. Don't trifle with a heart. That means if you aren't sure that you want to pursue this relationship, don't test people out. Don't flirt with them and see if they flirt back, see if they're interested. You'll get a, re you'll get a, a reputation, but worse than that, you'll hurt people's hearts. And you don't want to wreck your friends' lives. Evaluate character, evaluate personality, surrender, pray for discernment, and seek wise counsel. I mention that because many times 
people think that, you know, if, if the Lord has told me that this is a good person, I should go forward. I mean, talk with friends who know them, but be very careful when you talk with friends because friends have a habit of liking to uh, go between. Oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so really, you know, thinks you're nice. What do you think of him? Don't, don't do that to your friends. And uh, please don't, don't seek counsel from friends who you think are going to do that. Guys, please have mercy on girls and don't send a spy to figure out whether this girl is going to like you. Have the guts to do it yourself when it's the right time. And seek counsel from your parents. Who knows you better than your parents? Not all of us are blessed with godly parents. Not all of our parents know the people that we're interested in. But parents can still be so helpful. And more than anything, even if you don't have parents, God will guide you and he will send you to other people who have wisdom. And I would encourage you not to go to the next step unless you do have wise counsel. Haste makes waste. Immaturity is characterized by the inability to wait. I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. None of them are very good at waiting. <laughs> and, you know, and I've observed this commonly. Those who are immature don't want to wait for anything. They want it now, yesterday. Microwave. Give me a spouse tomorrow. If you're going to be together the rest of your life, it's okay to wait one more month before you ask this person out, right? Get, get all your homework done so that you don't, you don't risk wrecking their life or getting into a relationship that's very hard to get out of. Adventist homepage 50 says, While pure love will take God into all its plans and will be in perfect harmony with the Spirit of God, passion will be headstrong, rash, unreasonable, defiant of all restraint, and will make the object of its choice an idol. All of you have observed relationships like that, haven't you? I have. I was in one. And I remember just feeling like, you know, I knew it was a bad relationship. I knew I got, had to get out of it, but I was powerless to break it off. And so I just put it out of my mind. I pretended like I didn't know that this was not a good relationship. And then he finally broke up with me. And I thought I would die. I just didn't know how I was going to survive. But I did. Here I am. It was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because I wouldn't have had the love of my life if I had married that guy who really would not have meshed with me well ever. True love is not a strong, fiery, impetuous passion. In contrast with every movie you've ever seen. <laughs> On the contrary, it is calm and deep in its nature. It looks beyond mere externals and is attracted by qualities alone. It is wise and discriminating and its devotion is real and abiding. Adventist Home, page 51. If you haven't read the section in Adventist Home on courtship and love and marriage, I would encourage every one of you to read it. It's powerful. It really helps to just give some good, solid wisdom on how to make decisions. It's also in Messages to Young People and some other books. You want to avoid serious pitfalls, things like lifestyle issues. If you and this person don't mesh in lifestyle issues, it doesn't mean that either one of you is evil, but you may have different convictions on things like music or clothing or um, how to keep Sabbath. Those things can be huge when you're marrying somebody. Um, doctrinal issues, do they have the same view? And I don't mean just you're both Adventists. Sometimes there are lots of different uh, versions of Adventists. You want to be sure that you believe the same. Integrity issues. I dated someone who was messing around with somebody else while I was dating him, and I had no clue. It was devastating when I found out. You don't want to go through that. You want to know that this person is very much like Jesus before you start dating them. And lastly, personality issues, things that just will not gel nicely between the two of you. Step three is when you are not just friends anymore. You indicate your interest slowly in small ways. Um, Obviously, these are not just steps where you finish block A and now you step into block B and then you step into block C. Sometimes you go back and forth between here where, you know, you're kind of observing, but you also don't really want to leap into a relationship. So when you're interested in somebody, at some point you, can't, you don't just go from they have no clue that you like them to you sit down with them one day and say, I've decided I'd like to marry you. I mean, there are people who do that, and, you know, God bless them. Sometimes it even has worked. But it's not what I'd recommend. But the, the key is, before you start indicating your interest to somebody, you need to feel confident that the Lord is calling you forward. You need to feel confident that you know this person very thoroughly and that they are 
transformed into the image of Christ in many meaningful ways. That they're not just, you know, he really has a good heart. I've heard that so many times. That is one of the lamest excuses for a relationship I've ever heard. But I hear it all the time, and generally about unhealthy relationships. But she, you know, she has a really good heart, and she really does want to follow God. You know, she talks to me about spiritual things a lot when I bring it up. Um, so you indicate your interest slowly by maybe spending a little more time with somebody. Um, you know, when you go for a walk, maybe sometimes you do end up walking a little more with each other than with everybody else in the group. But be slow and cautious. Don't just leap. And then make your verbal commitment cautiously, if at all, in this stage, and seek prudent counsel. Definitely when you're showing an interest in somebody, you need to be sure that you're not making a mistake before you go all the way into making a commitment. Your keys to success in step three are don't let intimacy get ahead of commitment. This is one of the biggest mistakes I ever see in relationships, and it always, always leads to confusion and disaster. When your emotional or physical intimacy gets ahead of your commitment, you have problems. Don't let commitment get ahead of knowledge. Do not decide, I really, really feel this is the right person for me. Well, why? Oh, you know, it's just like this impression. When I pray about it, I really feel convicted that this is the right person for me. Uh-uh. Get wise counsel. Um, surrender. Give this relationship to God in every way. Pray a lot. If you're considering somebody as a possible life partner, Ellen White says, pray twice as much as you normally would. In the circles of intimacy, I just want to illustrate for you, when you're getting closer to somebody, you know, I've had people who come to me and they try to talk to me and build a friendship with me, and within an hour, they're pouring out their life story to me. Those are generally not the most balanced people. I mean, well, I should qualify. Now that I'm doing relationship seminars, some people write emails in which they pour out their guts and I've never seen them before. And that's okay. But I'm saying when you're making friends with somebody, usually it takes a while before you start giving them the intimate details of your lives. And this is the, the progression, the gradual progression that you should go through. You don't immediately let somebody into your heart. You don't immediately start making out with somebody when you just met them. And, you know, or at least you shouldn't, hopefully. And you don't immediately let them into the intimate areas of your life either, generally. Give it time, because when people pour out their hearts, they're usually trying to build bonds and get closer. If you don't want to get really close to this person, don't spend a lot of time talking about deep heart issues, like your needs and your fears and your feelings and your longings. Questions to ask before you make a commitment to somebody are, is this person a lot like Jesus? Is this person a lot like me? Spiritually, socially, intellectually, habitually, the way that they spend their time, the, way that the, the things that they like to do. If they like camping and hiking, and you like computers and reading, somebody's going to have to go out of their comfort zone. I mean, I'm not saying you can't like all of them, but if, you're, if your interests are vastly different, you may have some real problems. Step four, courting and dating. Um, when you start a committed relationship with somebody, you want to be sure that you're making the right choice before you make the commitment. Don't do it and then think, oh man, this really wasn't a good idea, was it? But it's too late now, we're already dating. But you continue getting to know this person, what they're like, you know, you gradually progress through those layers. If you've already decided to start dating, that doesn't mean that you automatically leap in and tell them your entire life story. Give, give it time. Give them some time to get to know you, get to know each other on a lot of different levels before you pour out your guts. Why do I say that? Because you're still, you know, the, the newer your relationship is, the more likely you are to break up, frankly. The more likely you are to break up, the more traumatic it's going to be if you do, if you've poured yourself out. So the more you share yourself with the person, the more committed you are, and the less likely you are going to be to break up, and the more painful it's going to be if you do. I don't know how else to explain that, except that you just, it's going to be very painful or very difficult or both to break up. So you want to wait and be sure, be confident that you really know what you're getting into. There are things you don't talk with a person about when you're not dating them, like birth control. You don't need to bring that up on your first date either. But um, <laughs> somewhere along the way in your committed relationship, 
you want to be sure that you're on the same page on things like that before you decide to get married to each other. That's not something you talk about at the very beginning, and you don't want to save it till the day before your wedding either. So you progress in your intimacy. You progress in talking about things. And regulate your physical intimacy by counsel and conviction. Progress very slowly in emotional intimacy, but progress 10 times more slowly in physical intimacy. You can never go back. When, when you've gone to a level physically, it's tremendously difficult to go back and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. It can be done by God's grace, but it's very difficult. Your keys to success in step four are be honest, communicate, get wise counsel, further evaluate their character and personality, and make haste slowly in emotional intimacy and physical, surrender and pray. This is not really too uh, deep and difficult to figure out. Um, I, just, I can share with you about our covenant. Alan and I made a covenant when we were dating between the two of us. And you can read a little bit of it there. That was just how we decided to regulate our physical intimacy. But um, you can look up things like that on Audioverse on our other, um, how, we, how we handled our covenant. We had things in that more thoroughly. Weigh every sentiment. Yes, we'll deal with, oh, you're going to read that one later? All right. Well, we will cover those later on in another presentation. The last step is engagement. Commitment to marriage and a lifetime of ministry together and a definite timeline toward marriage. When you hit that point in your relationship, make sure before you get engaged that you're solidly sure that you want to do this. Don't get engaged because of the thrill of the moment or something because you will regret that. Base it on a solid, confident commitment based on the knowledge of God, yourself, and the other person. Get premarital counseling. Be completely honest with each other. And maintain your careful physical boundaries. Just keep the Lord at the center of everything. Well, we're out of time. And we'll just take a very quick break quick before break. our so next staying, seminar. Just get up and stretch. There's some others who are coming in. You may be going to... Uh another seminar, so that's your time to do that. Thank you very much.